morning, y'all. It is summertime. It is already like 90 degrees outside. That's an overstatement, but I popped out the door very briefly at 5.30 in the morning. It was humid and hot, so it felt like I was in Georgia, but that's just me complaining. I'm just airing things out. You know, that's what I do. I'm the complainer. But guys, how is the week? How are things going? We're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed this morning. I think that's an album in the Chipmunks quote, so I apologize for that. But how's things going? What's 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 going down? Well, I'll uh, I'll go ahead and start it off this morning. It's good. It's good. It's uh, like you said. It's hot. I'm still recording in the garage, and uh, I walked inside to grab a second cup of coffee this morning to start off the podcast, and it is noticeably cooler in my house. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's 6 a.m. in the morning and I'm already starting to sweat. And, uh, yeah, just kind of like my day yesterday. I actually I started off the morning. I tried to get an earlier start to do some uh, core samples out in the field. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, uh, after after my first five feet, I was already sweating through my shirt, and it was only like 9:30 in the morning. So you know I could have gotten out there earlier, but it's that time of year. 9:30 in the yeah, at nine thirty in the morning, I was still, I was still sweating like crazy. So, yeah. But funny thing was, this made me laugh because we were talking about tales from the road. I think two episodes ago or something like that. And uh, as I was driving out to Selma to go um, to the farm, um, I'm driving down Clovis Avenue and we're in traffic, you know, speeding along about 30, 30 miles an hour. And there's this homeless guy on the side of the road pushing his cart, and he's trying to kick cars as they're passing. And it just cracked me up. <laughs> that could end so badly. I know, I know, I know. Thankfully, he—I don't think he was as close to the cars as he thought in his mind, mm-hmm. but it was still entertaining to watch driving by. You'd be surprised at all the stuff you see just going down that road. Just go down. Clovis, do it. See, you, you'll see what you see. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's that's amazing. Just so you know, I mean, Fresno and Sacramento share one thing in common, and that's interesting people walking down the side of the road. Yes, this is true. This is very true. I, when I was in college, I would uh, I would ride my bike from the apartments, um, and then ride to Fresno State. And the best thing that I saw a homeless person do was. He had parked his cart on the sidewalk and, uh, you know, one of those, um, collapsible canes for yep. elderly people. He had one of those and he had broken it apart by nunchucks and he was practicing his nunchuck skills on the sidewalk. And then he would drop it and he'd be like, Oh man. And then he'd pick it up and then he'd start again. It was so funny. I loved it. <laughs> oh God. But he was ready for anything. I'll tell you. I actually throw down. Yeah, over by Fresno State, I actually saw a guy um, pick up a large stick out of a trash can and just start swinging it at another dude. And it was it was like they were gonna fight, and they were yelling at each other, and then all of a sudden they just stopped talking, turned around, and went their opposite ways. I was like, is this a is this an old thing? Are we rehashing things? What's going on? No, I, I've so I've talked to a lot of the, uh, well, not a lot, but I mean, I, I I used to very frequently talk to homeless people, and that's just how they settle disputes. 
um, because it's, it's like their own world. I'm serious. No, I'm dead serious. I'm not. I'm not joking. They would actually settle disputes physically. And I remember one guy. He was saying, "Yeah, you know, if I'm sleeping in this one bush, um, and I and I come back at the end of the day, and there's somebody else sleeping there, I'll get some of the other guys that are living in the area, and we'll come over and we'll beat them up. And then he'll be like, "All right, cool. You guys got me." You can have you can have your spot back, and then vice versa. He's in it's somebody like the else's Wild spot. West. It really is. It really is. It's a totally different world. It's a totally different world. So, damn. Yeah. Anyways, well, on that note, Jeanette. Yeah. <laughs> I. It's brutal, man. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I mean, it's been getting pretty hot here, especially in the house. You know, it's just. I don't know. I get so agitated when it gets hot. Like, I just feel like there's so many things can go wrong when it's, like, super hot. And I'm like, I cannot, I cannot stand the heat. That's just one thing. I just cannot stand the heat. You're, you're, you're from Selma, dude. Get used to it. Dude, I know. I've been living here my entire life, but I still, like, it just gets me. Oh. I just take, like, showers every freaking five minutes. <laughs> Good thing okay, you don't I don't want to exaggerate that much, but... <laughs> I was going to say, we have a water oh. crisis, Jeanette. <laughs> I know, that's what I said. Jeanette's over here... Stuff on blast. Yeah, she's over here using 12-acre feet of water for showers a year. <laughs> I know. From the months of July to September. Yeah. But, okay. Yeah, her ET no, no, no. is very hot. Now... Shut up. No. Now that we're on that topic, it makes you wonder... How many people are actually wasting that much water? Oh, well, not 12 acre feet, but yeah, residential developments are some of the biggest water wasters in this state. Mm-hmm. It's, it's horrible. I mean, do people I, know I mean, that? I think, I think they're, I think they do, but I think the issues was dropped because I remember back in 2013, I think it was, that was the big deal about, um, you know, all the water waste that was going with people's lawns and Mm -hmm. over irrigating their gardens and stuff like that. I mean, I still see it. I see water running down my street all the time because people, the home, the home builders set the, uh, water, the water controllers on people's houses Mm -hmm. and then nobody ever cared to actually go and look at that after the fact and set it to the recommendations for the county. Yeah. So they're, they're irrigating for like 45 minutes at noon and all this water is just running down the gutter and it's, it's doing no good. People's lawns are dying. That drives me crazy. Yeah. 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 Thankfully with quarantine though, a lot of people did wake up and started to redo their front yards and stuff like that. And so I hope that that helped, but I, I, I think there's that missing link in the average person's mind about water use and the fact that we have a shortage and stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people get it because you see them with their water wise front yards, but then, you know, other people put in a whole new front yard, but then have 12 birds in paradise. Yeah. And, th- and then they don't change their watering routine. It's like, do the same thing, but just do it at 5 a.m. Yeah. So, anyways, get a timer, man. Yeah. Well, we have timers. All these, all these houses come with Wi-Fi and so you can do it right from your phone. That's the part that confuses the heck out of me. But. Okay. Well, I, I man, I don't know. I, I was gonna say though, when I lived in 
El Centro down in the Imperial Valley, one of the most bizarre things ever was was like a near constant happening in my subdivision. There was always water in the gutters. And I mean, I'm talking water in the gutter in the middle of August, like the hottest time of the year. And it was just that particular community, they've never had a, a I guess, a water restriction, kind of like Fresno. So everybody just over-irrigates their lawns all the time. And I was just, it was just mind-blowing to see a, a land covered in sand with water constantly flowing through it. Absolutely crazy. But... Yeah. I did tell you guys I have a question. I'm sorry I'm shifting gears really fast on you. Oh, you're good. Yeah, but we joked about the Mega Millions lottery just a little while ago before we started recording, and I was going to ask this question. You've just, you know, it's hypothetical. We've just won the lottery, or one of us has. What's your first purchase you're going to make? And I'm, I, I, want the, I want the guilty one. I want the guilty the guilty purchase, not that I'm going to buy a house and get a financial advisor. I want the, the one dumb thing you're going to buy. I made the joke earlier and I said, I'd probably get a draw. Yeah. Jeanette's going to get a draft. Connor, what are you going to get? <laughs> All right. Since this is purely hypothetical and there's no morality here, I just wanted to start it with that. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I don't even know. I would probably... I'd probably buy a Unimog. I've always wanted the Mercedes Unimog. Okay. So bad. <laughs> or nice. or a, like a 1970s era K5 Blazer. One of those. Okay. So Connor would get cars. Jeanette would get a draft. Um, I'd buy a whole zoo, but then I'd let him go because I'd feel guilty. I don't think that hundred million is going to go as far as you think. I know. This is why I can't, I'd, be, I'd be the worst at making that decision. What do you want to do? I don't know, buy a zoo, but then let them go. Like, okay. I just have this mental image now of a giraffe running down Shaw Avenue by Fresno State. <laughs> and Jeanette's just like, be free. belongs to Jeanette. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, okay. Side note. Do you remember in the movie Hangover where Alan has a giraffe in the car yes. and it just goes bad when he's down the highway? Oh my god. Catch an Why that image came to my uh, head. Which I'm actually really happy you just mentioned the hangover because my first guilty purchase would actually be something that was featured in those movies. Um <laughs> and it's not a face tattoo, but it has something to do with the face tattoo. Oh, I would goodness. I would absolutely call Mike Tyson up and pay him whatever he wants to come and be my wedding singer. I just would. Oh. That, <laughs> Oh, that's oh good. My God. Yep, Mike Tyson. I would love him just to sit up there and just sing all the hits. September, you know, You Are Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. It would be awesome. Oh, my God. Oh, okay, well, that's that's it for intros for the day. We, you know, we, we've talked about lots of <laughs> lots of nothing. And lots of everything, all in one like short eight-minute period. Oh. oh man. Well, we don't have Mr. Summer doing anything today, so Jeanette, walk us through it. What do we got? All right. So last weekend we had the pleasure of interviewing a 
wonderful person, person. I can't talk. Person. <laughs> Sorry. Scott. A wonderful person that was actually uh, the organizer that started the Klamath uh, rally. So I don't know if you guys heard about it a couple weeks ago, but there was a rally going on. I was called Shut Down and Fed Up. I got the name right this time. Yep. This time. This time. <laughs> but this individual, his name is Scott Seuss, and he's been around for quite a while now to know a lot. Sorry, I'm interrupting you, Jess. Scott Soy. 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 Sorry. Scott Soy. I'm all over the place today. Gosh. It's okay. Good. Okay. So we had a conversation and we just, you know, we wanted to know how it all started. Where did it, you know, where did it land? And just the situation and, you know, his insight about what's been going on in the industry and want to know his perspective of all things. So let's just go ahead and jump into it. Have you guys listen to it. And then we're going to have our discussion right after. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, we're very excited for our guest. Uh, Mr. Scott Soyce is joining us and uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the Kalamath region and uh, with some of the recent uh, protests that have been going on and just tell us a little bit about um, his knowledge on what's going on in the with the water situation up in that region. And uh, he's going to give us some insight. So Mr. Soyce, uh, tell us, you know, say hi and tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Thank, thanks for having me today to uh, talk a little bit about our our problems here in the Klamath Basin and how they may relate to, to the rest of California, Oregon, Western watershed national issues. Um, we um, we are kind of at the spear tip of the spear when it comes to ESA issues. And and that certainly resonates to a lot of areas growing every day with with ESA issues. But a um, little history background of our basin. Um, this area was settled in the in the late 1800s, early 1900s by the early settlers when it was predominantly a lake. And Bureau of Reclamation in 1905 recognized this as a as a potential project, and um, so they developed this um, region into a. Um, I totally blew butt past the introduction part. I probably ought to back up for that. No, it's totally good. It never works for you. <laughs> well. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start 1905, and then I'll tell you when I come into play. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. So anyway, 1905, the history the, the, and the history of the basin is when the reclamation um, decided they were going to make a project here, and they started an, an early. That was the water right that the Klamath reclamation project has. Um, they developed this into a um, an irrigation project that that spans a little over 200,000 acres. Um, as it was developed, per, the last portions of that project that were developed was down in, in the Tule Lake region where I live, which is the, mostly on the California side of the border. Um, we, we spanned two states and three counties, Klamath, Modoc, and Siskiyou County. And okay. um, <clears throat> so that, that uh, creates a lot of issues for us today and makes it a, a very complicated issue to try to resolve when you're talking about multi-state. Anyway, back to, to the Tui Lake portion of the project developing. Um, there was a, a grand design that was put put into place that, that stored water in Upper Klamath Lake. It dewatered what was Tule Lake at that time, which is actually where I live now. My house, where I'm doing this recording from, 
would have been 30 feet underwater at that point in time. Oh, wow. So over a, a period of years, they developed a, a system that took the water off of the land. Um, that water that came here from Upper Klamath Lake be, and, and created the Tule Lake Subbasin, that water would have to leave here by evaporating or, transpir or evapotranspiration through plants. So water came here to die, you might say, um, hmm. down at the bottom end of this valley. So they started to pump that water out of here back into the Klamath River and it made its way to the ocean. Um, series of canals, ditches, things were developed, 70 acre parcels up to 110 acre parcels and the, the government having uh, the wisdom to see a, a, a shortage of food because of um, the, the depression, the Great Depression that was freshly in everybody's minds, started to, to set these parcels up as the lake receded and then bring farmers in. And the farmers that they brought in were given the opportunity to, to be here because they were veterans of World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War. Hmm. So the, the early settlers that came, that came, came before that mostly settled the northern end of the basin. Um, my family came as, as my grandfather was drawn from the pickle jar in 1946. My dad was a month old when they moved here uh, in 1947. February 1947, they made their way down here. They were given a homestead that he had walked up to a map and put a pin on. Um, they would drove out across basically a dry lake bed with some bridges over ditches and things that were in being put into play. Um, placed by the Bureau of Reclamation, and they found their, their corner marker, and um, they were given one and a half barracks from the internment camp here, the Japanese internment camp. And we got a pretty rich history here, and this is where all the no-nos came, the, the Japanese um, prisoners of war, or the, the American prisoners of war, you might say, that were here, the Japanese descent that wouldn't sign the, the statement from the government pledging allegiance to America and denouncing Japan. So gotcha. barracks and a half is what they had. And they went and set it, set it on the corner a lot of the, of the property. And, and, um, that's where we live today. Not, not in the barracks that those were pretty cold, desolate spots to live <laughs> yeah. paper and one inch boards that basically made them up with a pot belly heater in the middle of them. And so oh, man. over, over a few years, they, they developed it and developed a house here, built a house and also a grain cleaning facility here that, uh, and that was, that was what grandma and grandpa settled. Um, wow. along a lot of other world war two vets that were, that were here kind of made a pretty special community. Yeah. But, uh, so we still are on that original homestead. Um, we farm a variety of crops. Um, horseradish is probably what we're best known for. We're one of two horseradish farmers that are left here in the basin. Um, and and um, so we raise horseradish, onions for dehydration, which a lot of those end up down in the Central Valley, uh, going to, the, to uh, the two processors that are left in California. Um, we raise garlic for seed and for organic fresh market. Um, peppermint and spearmint for teas and oil. Um, most of that exported to overseas. Alfalfa, wheat, barley, um, just rotational type crops, but it's it's predominantly our big three are the onions, the horseradish, and the mint. And uh, yes. those are the crops that we kind of, we feed our family with. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, such a rich history. I mean, I mean, this is why I love California is because it's such a big state. We talk about this quite often is how big California is and uh, just all the different things that you would never have thought about uh, happening here in California. I mean, it. this history sounds very much Grapes of Wrath to me. <laughs> you know, I, I could just imagine, you know, a flatbed truck just loaded up, you know, driving over these rickety planks to try to cross a ditch to get to somebody's homestead that they've been promised. I mean, that that's just, man, what a great picture. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and, and it truly was, and it, and it was theirs to develop and make what they could out of it. And they made a community out of it, out of a melting pot of American soldiers that came back from war, from World War II, talking predominantly about Tulu Lake, but that, hmm. was, that was the, 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 the people that came from all walks of life to come here. They had to have some knowledge of farming. They had to have some money in their pocket and they had to have, um, you know, they had to be a, a, a veteran of the war. And so, hmm. you know, the people that were here were, were in the Bataan March, Japanese, you know, the, the Bataan March down to people that were in the Coast Guard and everything in between that, that it took to, to win World War II. Those are the people from all across the United States. So wow. it truly was a melting pot in in that in the real sense when it came to an agricultural community, and they came with a lot of different ideas. Thing about this area is we're over four thousand feet in elevation. It's cold. It's miserable. Mm. It's windy, <laughs> and it's dependent on water that we store in the Upper Klamath Lake. And mm. um, we had plentiful water in in those days because the water that was being stored in the lake was predominantly used for for the farming community and for the Klamath, um, Klamath Complex of National Wildlife Refuges, which is the, the flagship of, of the refuge system um, in the United States. We're a major part of the Pacific Flyway. Um, traditionally, that's been recognized as being part of the winter flyway when the birds are headed south, that this is a stopping of fueling grounds. Since the Central Valley in California has, has stopped burning rice fields um, above the Sacramento Basin, when they stopped burning those rice fields and they started flooding them, there's, you know, these, you know, they basically turned those fields into great big Anheuser-Busch fields of, of, of rice. And so the kilocalories that are down there that of rice is a lot more attractive than our dry grain. Now they hit these fields on their way back north and that's kind of reversed the flyway timing. But, but anyway, still a very, very important part of our landscape very important part of our responsibility as farmers and what we take care of here is is those refuges as well and they have a, a junior water right to agriculture but it's always in in agriculture's best interest to try to get water to those refuges and we work diligently to make that happen yeah okay scott i i was gonna say you know that's kind of the background and I, I was curious. So I was actually living, I did a year down in Imperial County. So I was living in a place with terminal water. I was going to say, can you kind of set the stage, you know, maybe the last 20 years, what's been going on up in Klamath and the water issues that you've been facing? You bet. So, so we're probably our, our, one of our big markers in the, in the history of, of, uh, of California and Oregon water wars was 2001. Um, Clinton administration had left office. Uh, Bruce Babbitt was uh, was the Secretary of Interior. He he left us with a he threw a bomb in the toilet bowl on his way out and and set us up with a with a a burden that we were going to have a biological opinion that when the Bush administration walked in they had to honor and 
it basically said there wasn't enough water for the for the salmon in the Klamath River and the short nose and long and lost river suckers that are in Upper Klamath Lake. So we we are we are kind of in a, in the middle of of uh, two two separate species or actually three species, but but two separate biological opinions. We have Upper Klamath Lake, which stores our water for agriculture, and we have the Klamath River, which is downstream from us. That 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 with the uh, with the uh, the salmon in it is we've got an issue there, and and a biological opinion that we have to keep satisfied there as well. Upper Klamath Lake generally recharges three times a year. You have to get that much water through it to be able to satisfy things. The biological opinion that we were given from the Clinton administration that that Bush was forced into into the Bush administration was put into enacting on us took more water to satisfy the fish in the lake and the fish in the river than there was water in the entire system ever. And so farmers were in a position where we got what was left. And and that was why we had the 2001 water water shutoff. Mm. And that you know that we've been referred to as the Everglades of the West. We've got the the refuges here. We've got pristine water that comes from from Crater Lake to Yamsey Mountain and comes down through the watershed. To the east of my house, we have the the Devil's Garden, which is a, over a million acres of of a of a basin that that flows water to one spot, which eventually ends up here in the basin. So all that water was designated for fish, and that's what shut. That's why we in 2001 went without water and became kind of the poster child for ESA. Um, 2002, there was a fish kill in the river. They, the Bush administration worked hard. They came up with water. They figured out a way to try to jumpstart our community again that was in total shock. Um, and and they, they restarted that. There's a there's 1,200 farm families in 2001 that didn't get water delivered to them that year. Oh and so you, you take it, it was, it was the the initial strike against agriculture um, when it comes to water deliveries in the West, in the, in the United States. Since then, we've seen it happen down in the Central Valley, but I think, I think that goes a long ways to talking about some of the support that we got out of the Central Valley in 2001 came from people that recognized that if they could do it here, if they could do it in the Everglades of the West with, with abundant water that flows down that comes out of the hills and they and they could allocate a hundred percent more than a hundred percent 120 percent of the water that comes out of that watershed and give it to the fish and take everything away from the farmers then there was there is a long-term issue here that needs to be resolved and mm -hmm. and, and real threats to the rest of uh, the rest of the uh, the rest of america really when you get yeah. down to it so yeah yeah so we we went through 2001 um we did a there was a, a tractor rally in 2001, which was the initial call to action from everybody to try to make people aware of what was happening here. Probably our biggest event was um, the Bucket Brigade, um, where we had we had people lined the streets of Klamath Falls, Oregon, and it started at Lake Iwana, and we transferred water from Lake Iwana all the way back up to the to the A Canal, which is the primary canal that's, that that uh, delivers water to the project. So bucket by bucket, 50 buckets of water, one representing every state, dipped out of Lake Iwana by one of the, one of the homesteaders that was still alive at that point in time, wow. um, and and then passed down through through congressmen and senators that were here shoulder to shoulder with us, you know, saying this is an injustice, um, 
And and that that got national attention. I mean, there was probably I, I think that the number is somewhere around eleven thousand people that gathered in the street for that to uh, to make that demonstration. So a large expanse of time goes yeah. by. We're Twenty years down the road, right? There's been there has been settlement talks. There has been climate basin restoration agreement. There has been coalition of all. There's, there's all kinds of attempts to try to bring together the tribes. We've got four tribes in the Klamath Basin, one above us, which is the Klamath tribes. And then down the river from us, we have three. We have the Karuk, the Yurok, and the, and the Hoopa. And they all have their own ideas on what, what is right okay. and what is wrong and, and uh, their own demands on the system. Mm-hmm. And they have... Um, and they have different levels of authority to go after that um, via tribal trust um, rights that, mm-hmm. that they're given. So <clears throat> we, we've gotten to the place where we almost had a resolution and it involved the, the dams coming out of the Klamath River, the Klamath River <clears throat> dams, which is probably its own 45 minute cod- podcast. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there's a. Uh, there's been a lot of efforts to try to gather everybody together and get to where we can work through things. And we've had, we've had the Bush administration, we had the Obama administration, and now we're into the Trump administration on this. And, and through it all, um, we've, we've had to fight every step of our way to, to re-educate people on what's going on. Um, I think it's interesting that 2001 was a Bush administration, and now we're in a Trump administration where we ended up as low as 50, um, where we were almost shut off. We would have been shut off today, actually, um, had the the allocation that we were given earlier this year stood the test of, of, of what, what was initially put out. Mm-hmm. Um, today specifically, like June 17th? Within a few days of now was when we were projected wow. to run water. Mm. So... We initially, uh, you know, we go back this 20 years of working through all these things, and we've always managed to keep the water flowing until 2020. In 2020, here we are this year with a, a different set of biological opinion standards that we're having to comply with. Um, those standards are are helped to be designed by science. It's supposed to be based on the best available science. That science right now is coming from from the tribal biologists because they're they're funded to do that science. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, um, we're farmers first, right? And that, I don't have a fisheries degree. I, I have a hard time understanding when a biologist is talking to me about fish and, and knowing what is, what is a real situation and what is, a, a trying to get to a certain outcome. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's probably the nicest way I can say that. <laughs> but we, we struggle with that daily here and in, in, in knowing what is what, um, and and th- that science, that best available science that we're being given to to base these decisions off of, that is all stuff that we can't control. It's completely yeah. out of our out of our control, and we're basically given what's left over, right? So mm-hmm. that's where we ended up this year. We had 140,000 acre feet of allocation on our in, in by comparison in 1992, a similar water year type from a hydrologic standpoint. We had almost 500,000 acre feet of water delivered to the project to get an irrigation that year. The Klamath wow. River went down in, in the amount of water that was being released in it, but because of the biological opinions being what they are, they have held the, the levels up um, 
to where there there's there was only going to be 140,000 acre feet of water to deliver to the project this year. Then between April one, when everybody made their plans and said we've got we've got 140,000 acre feet, let's do the best we can with um, set aside programs with with well water augmentation with you know trying big start steal and borrow whatever we could to try to get as much wet water as we could to irrigate permanent crops being alfalfa horseradish things like that but mm-hmm. also for for the crops that really made a difference here and it's not for us to say one person's crops more important than another but sure. when when your grain prices are in the toilet you're probably going to irrigate the one that's going to put food on your table first right so yeah. we were trying to get long-term water um for the basin to make sure that we could get through the end of the season. So here we are, April 1 with 140,000 acre feet. Everybody goes to work seeing how they can stretch it. Farmers think that they've got a plan put together and they start purchasing fertilizer and treating potato ground for nematodes and other things and buying seed, um, signing contracts and lining things up. I mean, you know, Everybody was putting their best program that they had into, into play. And then the first week of May, a bomb goes off and they blow up everything that we've got. And they said the hydrologic graph data that shows that the inflows in the upper climate yeah. lake are going to be less than we think. And so we're going to drop you down to 80,000 acre feet. By the way, you've already used 30,000 acre feet of that. Oh, my gosh. So we are looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of, eight, of 55,000 acre feet of water left to deliver on about the 10th of May. And everybody already had their crops in the ground, money spent. You know, you're at a point of what do you do? There's there's really no return. So um, your hands are tied at that point. Like there's not much you can you can do. There's not no because I mean with the money you know and pe- people need to understand. I mean you know a farm person understands this, but. But people in the city don't necessarily understand that when you put together a farm program and then you you go to your bank and you yeah you go and say I need an operating loan or I need this or I need that to make this you're you're running on borrowed money from that point on during that year in most yeah. cases um, especially if you're a young beginning farmer um, mm-hmm. that is hard to get to return to this basin as it is following 2001 those guys have to go to the bank and borrow that money and. They sign on the dotted line and they go buy fertilizer and they put seed in the ground and they spend fuel and they've paid their land rent and they paid their water bill. And then all of a sudden you're told there's no way that you can get that return on investment. Yeah. Mm. So it's just a matter of time before the wolves are at the door saying, you know, you have, we're going to call the loan in. Right. And, and so this compared to 2001 was far more serious because in 2001, we knew before the beginning of the irrigation season that we were not going to irrigate. So mm-hmm. people had an opportunity to shore themselves up the best they could, not spend money. This year, people had invested. They had gone out and invested heavily. So, yeah. So we we uh, you know we we've got some great irrigation districts here in the basin. We've got a lot of people that have been fighting this water battle since, you know. Clear back to 1992 when we had the the last drought and we started being aware of what ESA could mean to this basin. There's been people engaged in this water, in the water, I'll call them water wars because that's what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here we end up 
<clears throat> this year pulling it pulling out the I mean it's pretty sad that we've got a playbook right but we went back to the 2001 playbook what, what is it that we need to do and we need to make people aware and, it, and everybody has got the difference between 2001 and now is in 2001 we were we were blazing the trail nobody else knew what it was to have this situation now 20 years later the central valley's been through it in countless ways um, you know, you've got the spotted frog up in the uh, up around uh, Redmond Culver Madras area that, in Oregon that's that's strangling their irrigation districts. Um, mm -hmm. Washington's got their problem. There's there's ESA issues everywhere that are determined by biological opinions how they're going to strangle farms, and um, and that whether that's their intent or not, that's what they do. They take away the lifeblood of our farms, the water. And, and they make it so that we can't um, we can't be a dependable food supplier. Yep. So so this year we we are we're in I mean I hate to say it we're in good company right we got a lot of friends and neighbors that are that are in other farming regions that have got that know what it is to be in our situation maybe not as dire but they've all had a taste of it and and um, so we. Uh, with about, uh, I think we gave ourselves 16 days to get something put together to do a tracker rally. And uh, and that's what we did. We came up with a name, uh, Shut Down and Fed Up. Mm -hmm. A lot of people thought that was COVID. That's okay. Made them aware of our issue once we researched it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, I mean, it, it basically, it describes what where we're at. I mean, we're shut down. We're fed up. We are tired of being a, a social experiment. Mm -hmm. And... And um, so we we decided to do a tractor rally, a little bit afraid that it wouldn't be as big as 2001. And, and knowing that that was a standard, the bucket brigade and the, the when when everybody was focused on the Klamath was was very successful. And we knew that we had that as I mean, we, we had a night a poll the night before we put the thing before we came out of the gates with it. We pulled the, our group and said, how many do we think we'll have show up, you know, and I. I, you know, I was playing the prices right, and I one of my friends said one of the gals that actually does our webpage. She she said two uh, twelve hundred, and I said twelve hundred and one. Uh, and so anyway, the uh, and the next morning, and we had had people hauling in tractors to a, an empty field, getting prepared for it just outside of Merrill, Oregon, all day. And some of my crew getting tractors lined up because I said if if a politician wants to come and they want to be in this thing, we'll have something there for them to drive. And oh, cool. same, same offer for my friends from down in the Sacramento Valley and friends up in Culver, Oregon that, that came and drove tractors just to show support. So, so awesome. that night there was 17, there were 17 tractors in that barren field. And, uh, the next, next morning when I got to the highway, I'm about 15 miles south of there, 16 miles south of there. When I got to the highway, it was a stream of tractors headed for the field. And uh, I'll tell you what, it was it was a pretty pretty amazing thing to behold. And um, we actually got to the point that we started the rally sharp at 10 o'clock. It was the convoy was to begin, and uh, we started the convoy about five minutes late, waiting for a congressman to show up. And uh, he got there and he got in one of my tractors, and away he went. And uh, I'll tell you what, um, there was. Um, we had to stop the traffic thing. It was coming to the field so that we could start taking traffic out of the field so that we could merge them, you know, and it, 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 it's wow. a little, it, you know, 
farmers are pretty pretty cordial and they all they all work pretty good to merge but you know it's just as complicated here as it is on the 505 right yep. so um, there's a there was there was plenty of uh, plenty of patience and stuff out of everybody that day that had made it happen but uh, at 12:30 in the afternoon um, we had uh, the first 75 vehicles had pulled into the rally spot um, that is on Highway 97, and the last vehicle was pulling out of the field in Merrill, Oregon, and which made it 20, at that point in time, it was 29.3 miles of convoy. Wow. So we had in excess of 2,000 vehicles that were in the convoy, um, and they weren't all farm pickups and tractors and things like It was also, it was people from the city that came to support us. And That's great. They were flying flying flags and had their banners saying we support our farmers and I'll tell you what that was pretty important to us so it's great yeah amazing yeah so you know talking about a lot of this and, and bringing um light to issues and highlighting issues that um that are in the industry and are obviously very apparent like the water issues um and then also the labor issues um, you know, do you see, what kind of solution do you see? I mean, obviously give the farmers the water they need, but <laughs> in, in a real world sense, you know, what, what is the solution that you see to all this? And is there a way to collaborate in your opinion, to be able to get the environmentalists, the things that they need to get the, the first nation, the people, you know, the things that they need, and then also to get you guys, or is that not even possible? What, what do you think in your opinion? Well, I, I think it's about balance, right? And and I think it's about trying to make people realize the importance of what you do. I, I you know, there we're too far. This problem is going to become worse and worse for us in agriculture if we don't start tackling it now. Mm -hmm. And 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 the problem it stems from generations removed from their agrarian roots. It becomes way too easy. It's it's. You know, everybody's got a device in their hand. They're in. They're used to instant gratification. They can order something from Amazon, have it delivered the same day for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. You know, things are things are readily available all, at all times, and nobody knows what it is to want and not get right. And they don't know what it means to uh, what the repercussions of making sure that 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 food source that that you know whatever it is that they're needing that toilet paper. They don't, hmm. you know, it wasn't until yeah. a couple of weeks ago that people realized, oh my goodness, what do I do without toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. But it was one of the most essential things everybody went for. We need them to start realizing that what went in the other end of their body was more important than the toilet paper on the opposite side, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that that's the, the the disconnect that we have with people right now is that, that they just expect that that's always going to be there because farmers are so good. We're a victim of our own success of making sure that it's always available to them. Mm. And, and I'm not, I'm not advocating that you short people food or something like that to make them wake up, but we've got to make them realize what that means. I mean, if you can't, if COVID didn't, the COVID scare and the fact that store shelves went empty in the first two weeks of the COVID didn't make people realize for just one moment, how important what we do on a daily basis is to them and, and their dinner table, then I don't know that how you get it across to them, but mm. I, I'm absolutely committed to trying to find a way to communicate with, uh, I'll just say millennials, because I think that they're, for the most part, they're probably the most disconnected at this point, but um, 
you know, we're, we go through generations, society goes through changes in, in a, of what's important to them. And we've got to find a way to, to emphasize to them the importance of being able to have a reliable food supply mm-hmm. um, that makes them respect the fact that there's got to be balance. Like it's, it's all about instant gratification, instant emotion. What are they feeling today, right? So somebody says this fish is going to go without water and the, the knee-jerk reaction is we've got to get them all the water in the world. Well, no, it's, it's balance, yeah. it's timing, it's biology. There's a whole lot of things that go into that, that that's more than just make sure all the water goes to the river because some of that water is producing the food that they're depending on tonight for supper. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, we just got to figure out a way to, to say that better. I feel like a lot of emotion goes into play when making that decision because everyone thinks like, oh, it's a poor you know creature that doesn't have all the water in the world, so we need to put all that effort into it. But going back to your statement when you said, it's sad that we need to have a playbook for these kind of situations because everyone in the past has known that we've been able to tackle so many issues along the history. So it's kind of like they take it for granted that oh, what's one more thing that's going to hurt them? Like, they'll figure it out. Like, how much do we figure out? (laughs) Technology is coming along the way where it's going to make things easier, but we're still human. Like, we're still trying to adapt to our own situations, and now you're trying to, like, cut off another arm? Like, how much can we take? You know what I mean? So it's true when you say it's sad that we need to have a playbook for these kind of situations, but because people are taking that for granted that they just think, you know, food is just going to appear magically. It doesn't. There's so much, you know, there's so much things that go into play for that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It's really sad. And that that's what gets me, you know, fired up in that situation where I, I don't know what else to say, you know, it's just how much can we take? I wonder if it's a frequency issue though. Um, because look how impactful, your movement was Mr. Soyce and, and same thing with the bucket brigade in the past. So I, I wonder if, if there needs to be a larger scale coordination across multiple regions in California to just, just continue the momentum, you know, not wait until something like this happens. I mean, obviously I'm sure you were right on top of things because this is your, your, your daily life, but I'm almost wondering if, if we, as an industry need to have a much more coordinated attack because as we've seen throughout history even a small group as long as their voice is the loudest can really make some uh, major impacts in society in which we live so maybe this is us all four of us sitting here right now to everybody that's listening uh, you know in the future uh, when this episode's released and then going forward if they go back and listen to this we need to we need to continue to drive this momentum forward mm-hmm. so that way we can really try to um, inflict some some change in, in the society that we're living in, trying to get people to realize, just like you said, with this pandemic, that this stuff can go away if we don't provide, if, if we don't give the engine the fuel that it needs, it's not going to run. Yep. Yeah. I, I, I honestly believe that um, our, our biggest problem in agriculture is we have to be on the brink of an absolute disaster before anybody pays attention. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, we have to be on the brink of a disaster before even those of us in ag pay attention to it and, and react to it, right? Yeah. And yeah. Case in point this year. I mean, we've got people that work on this every day. Um, 
for for the last 20 years we've worked on this every day in some capacity and and people take their their part of it and they work on it but to get the grander part of the, the bigger part of the community i mean we've got a job we've got a job of going and producing food mm-hmm. you know and the yeah. people that we're arguing against have got a job and that job is to try to take our water away and so they've got a very very pointed job and and, and they take our water away to protect the species whatever you want to call it it's an attack on ag and and it makes it difficult for us so it, it really isn't until there's blood in the water and it's spilled by, you know, it, it's at, at our cost. I mean, it's it's our farms drying up and that's the blood in the water that, mm. that people start to realize, oh, my goodness, we have a real we have a real epidemic going on in, in Tule Lake, California, and everybody reacts to it. We, we have to make the time in our in our own industry that we deal with this and there's people that are and kudos to them for and and for trying to educate people and but Mm -hmm. the idea that we have to be hurting that badly before we can get the public's attention is a a real problem and we need to figure out how that is and the problem you know in 2001 it was truly like and everybody watched with bated breath to see what was going to you know climate face and then it was everybody waited with bated breath to see what was going to happen to us and then slowly that rising tide hit them and it went all the way through California and it went into Oregon and it's in Washington and it's in Nevada, Jarbridge and other places. You know, I mean, you can you can name a thousand different natural resource epi- issues that have come up that have brought people to their breaking point. Malheur, I mean, not, not that I condone that kind of activity, but Malheur was uh, and the Bundys was was a similar deal where people just brought to their breaking point. I think that we have to do it better. I think we have to speak with a more unified voice about mm-hmm. what this does to people's food security. I mean, we should all be about a safe, reliable domestic food supply. Absolutely. And what we should be doing, yep. and that's what people should be wanting to support. And it, it's not until it's not there that they really start to go, uh-oh, now what? And, and um, so we have to make them realize that before that becomes the reality. And, and it, it does mean that we need to have a concerted, you know, everybody in chorus together speaking the same thing. And, and I believe that through the Central Valley of California that there's enough of us that, you know, people were watching us again this year, but you got a 5% allocation down in the state project. And it's like, those guys are in bad spot too. You got Sigma coming in that's going to dry up a million acres of the Central Valley, potentially from well water, and they shouldn't have to be using a well at all. They should be using surface water, but because of ESA constraints, it, it has driven people to the point where they have to go to drastic and 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 then that isn't necessarily what everybody focuses on. They all focus on farmers are taking all the groundwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Farmers don't choose to take that groundwater. Farmers are choice are forced to take that groundwater because they're trying to keep their farms alive. Yeah. And and that needs to be the message that people need to understand is that this is not by choice. This is by reaction to a, a bad a bad set of policy. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, what else what else do you think along with this? So, let's kind of play this out a little bit and say we we as an industry start to unify our voice across, you know, north to south, east to west here in California. And we start, you know, coordinating more rallies, coordinating, um, you know, being able to get in front of the different um, senators and Congress people that we need to be talking to. Um, what are some of the other issues that you would like to see highlighted along with 
um, the water issues. I, I think outside of the, you know, water issues are d definitely one, but um, understanding, um, you know, I think people take it for, I mean, we got, we, we have a terrible black eye, I think when it comes to farm labor um, from the, the standpoint that people think that, that agriculture abuses that. And mm. um, my farm doesn't operate without good people. And my farm doesn't operate without people out there working for the people that, for other people. And um, the food supply dries up without a good, a good ag labor. Um, you know, I mean, we, we could go down a list. I mean, that that's way away from the, from water issues. You got air issues, you got, you know, you've got the Sigma that's coming down. Um, there's, there's a dozen things that are, that are highly critical and probably the heaviest lift out of all of them would be the ESA because, you know, Richard, Richard Pombo isn't doing, he's not in Congress today because he took on ESA. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, um, it's hard to get people to, um, to understand that that doesn't make it an untouchable thing. Like it needs to be modified. It needs to quit being, exploited in the ways that it's being exploited. The original intent of ESA was probably a, a noble and worthy cause. How it's being utilized today and what it's doing without any any recognition of the cost to human, um, to, to communities and operations and generational um, farms, things like that. Humans have got to have a role in this somehow. I mean, they've got to be recognizing what, what those kind of things do to it. I think that the, you know, we need to partner better. Hmm. Um, we all look at one another and, and, and we talk to one another, and but we're talking in a circle, right? We yeah. have yeah. to get outside of the circle we're talking to and, and programs like yours hopefully are, are reaching out to people outside of the circle and making people realize the, the vulnerability that they have with policy continuing the way that it is. I, I will say that I think that the best way to do that is by the people that we sell our products to. I mean, my horseradish ends up next to a stake in Kansas City, or it ends up in New York, or it ends up in Seattle next to a stake, and nobody knows the backstory of that. They don't know that I'm a third generation farmer that my son is hoping to take over and that, uh, that it took 75 people working in a, in concert to try to produce that product to get it to a grinder to turn it into a product yep. and 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 the people that are eating that just take it for granted it came from a bottle and it's going to be there tomorrow just like it was today yeah we need to be partnering with with you know the 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 producers that the end users that are the people that are between us and the end user and and selling that story in the products, whether it's Bigelow tea or it's beaver brand horseradish or it's Lay's potato chips, it doesn't matter. Like whatever whatever that product is, those companies need to understand the importance of partnering with us. And, and a lot of them think it's taboo to get into that because they get maybe potentially crossways with the way that their their demographic of customers look, look at it. But the reality is, is they don't have anything to give them if they don't start partnering with us and trying to help us sell our story, yep. and help us make that change. And they should hold us to an accountability of doing the right thing and, and that we are, are safe producers of that food, that we're taking care of the pesticides and things like that. We're doing things that are that are in, in line with the law. And we're all under audits today, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a Rainforest Alliance certified mint grower. Hmm. I, 
I'm the third one in the United States to be certified by the Rainforest Alliance. Oh wow! Okay. The reality is, is most people go and buy a buy a bag of tea and they don't or coffee and they don't think much about it. But there is a there is a portion of that of of their market that that matters to right. That, that yeah. I'm I'm certified Rainforest Alliance. That that means good things to them. Well, that's that should mean also that they can talk about my story and how my story how my story is giving them a, re, a responsible, um, responsibly produced food, but also sustainable. Sustainable doesn't just mean sustainable for the environment. Sustainable means sustainable for the farm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I really hope that, um, you know, this, this continues to take off. You know, we, we are a younger podcast, um, but, you know, we're hoping that this is that platform to um, have folks such as yourselves come on and be able to raise their their voice about the issues that they want more people, a broader audience to be to be aware of. And so I'm glad that we, we have the technology available that we can reach a much broader audience in a much quicker succession than has been able to be done in the past. And, and I really do hope, again, that people listening, um, please let this be call to action to all of us you know i'm feeling very inspired right now it makes me want to go set up a bucket brigade yeah. <laughs> you know, fresno or you know maybe set up a, another tractor rally um just yeah. yeah why not why not i mean they did it on the 99 with all the truckers let's do the same thing you know let's, let's clog up the 99 even more why not there, there was there was a tractor convoy that happened on i-5 i forget how many years ago that was now but uh, some of our some of some of our mutual friends, I'm sure, were were part of that, and, and um, you know, I mean, it, that's, I, I, you know, I, one of the pictures that's famous from the bucket or from the from the rally in the in the final spot where we put 2,000 crosses to represent the farms that potentially were going that have gone away since 2001, and, mm -hmm. and ones that potentially go away this year without change. Um, which, by the way, we are we are back to 140,000 acre feet of water to deliver to the project right now, um, because of in a large part due to the the awareness that we brought to people and and making the administration know that this wasn't okay. Um, mm -hmm. So you know you don't the squeaky wheel gets the grease is the old saying and it does. There's nothing more true about that. But one of the, one of the pictures that I've got from that day is my daughter that is uh, eight years old going out to plant a flag by one of the crosses. And that same night was the night that the the all the riots started with BLM. And I'll tell you what, if there's if there's anything about agriculture is that when we rally and when we when we riot, um, we riot with patriotism, right? And and it's about. We're, we're patriots first and foremost. We're we're for this country. We're, we we have a job to do for this country, and I think that that's something that we need to say louder and louder. Because you know, unfortunately, it got drowned out by all the negativity that's out there right now. And um, while it's its own social issue that needs to be dealt with, the one that's happening here is is of equal importance to us in in, in its own light. Um, and and we got to figure out how to how to not get, get, get drowned out, um, at the end of the day. And that's one thing that we're struggling with right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, living in this great country, we, we have the ability to have freedom of speech. 
and uh, be able to express ourselves. And, and I mean, I think this is just, it's great because we're seeing a lot of use of that right right now. And, and uh, again, you know, I think we just need to continue to pound the pavement, as they say, and just keep driving this, uh, this dialogue forward. Uh, Josh, you were going to say something. Scott, I was just going to say, you know, everything you've talked about, about telling the story, communicating the message, that's the whole point of what we're trying to do here. But in order for you to better spread yours, what are some of the ways that you can tell our audience, you know, is it social media? Do you have a website? Where can they go to learn more about the Thule Basin, the Klamath, you know, Rivershed, all of these things that we've talked about, where can they go to look that up? So yeah, if you if you go to shut up fed uh, shut down fed up dot <laughs> org. Uh, no, I like that better. <laughs> if you go to that website, um, that that is that's a great spot. We we are on Facebook at at uh, shut down fed up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you search us out, um, I I mean we we literally started 16 days before that tracker rally and and. Uh, threw something up and and it took off and and share it i mean if you if you come to it if you join the group if you like what you're reading you like the message i mean a lot of it's about us but it's relatable anywhere mm-hmm. um, if, if it makes sense what we're talking about there to you share that with your friends list because we need you know it doesn't help it doesn't do us any good if you were just talking to people that agree with you you have to you have to have the courage to get it out there and say it to mm-hmm. other people too and mm-hmm. and um and so we ask you to share that with your friends list. Um, and, and then, you know, if you want to get into the, 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 uh, the, the Klamath, the history of the Klamath crisis, um, KlamathWaterUsers.org is, is a great place with a lot of information. That's a, a conglomerate of a lot of our irrigation districts that work together on this issue to try to, try to keep water flowing in our ditches on a daily mm-hmm. basis from a policy level. Um, and, um, you know, that those are those are the spots that I would suggest that you go to right now. But I think the shutdown uh, fed up is definitely um, easy to understand in graphics, talks about the economics of it, and then just tries to keep it positive the best that we can um, and hold 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 situations accountable that need to be held held accountable. So that we, we are definitely looking to try to see this. Um, used as a platform by other people for sure um, because we've all got we're all dealing with the same thing it doesn't matter if you're in you're in Hanford California or if you're in Tule Lake or you're in Culver Oregon we've yeah. all got the same issue and we need to start learning from one another and and I'm, I'm encouraged by the amount of people that reach out and say we really want to come sit down and try to figure out mm-hmm. where we can be back and where we can learn from one another's successes and failures and, and how to keep it going. You know, one of the things that we mentioned was, you know, about having blood in the water. So we got restored to 140,000 acre feet of water for our basin. It's still just 30% of what we should have on an average yeah. year, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or in a similar year type to 1992. So our, our problem is, is that everybody says, oh, we got 140,000 acre feet back. Problem solved. It's it's not even close to solved. It's it's not even close to solved. And there are people people here that will go bankrupt this year because they won't be able to hold it together. But the people that have spent, you know, the idea is that now we we can at least recoup a lot of our investments. Um, but this isn't that's not what that land's made to do. Some of the richest farm ground in the United States 
with an abundant water supply that's just being policied away from us. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, again, this is the third time I'm saying it, <laughs> but I really hope that that this can have an impact that that this impacts at least one person, and then we just have that domino effect, and and it just snowballs, mm -hmm. and uh, this is just the beginning to something great. Um, yeah, so um, along with uh, being able to learn a little bit more about the issues here, we're also really big about supporting local and investing back into our community. So uh, what are some of the products, if if we have people that are interested in your horseradish or some of the other things that, um, that your products go into, what are some of the brands that they can look for on the store shelves? So, so yeah, Beaver, Beaver or Tule Lake brand horseradish, um, those are... Engelhofer horseradish. Um, those are those are products that uh, if you buy a bottle of that horseradish, it's almost exclusively my horseradish that's processed in that. But you know that's a great relationship. Started in 1954 uh, was the original signing of a contract. Mm -hmm. It's still the contract that I have today. We don't the handshake agreements and and those are the kind of relationships that we're trying to protect um, because they're they are. You don't have that every day in ag anymore, but the, that's the kind of people that we deal with and that are dealing with us. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's the salt of the earth type of type of thing that people yeah. wish they had more of. So Beaver Brand, Beaver Brand is one of them. Um, you know, Bigelow Teas, um, hmm. pretty, we're one of the primary areas for, for peppermint and spearmint teas in the United States. Um, one hmm. of the main regions that that's grown in. Um, Potato chips. I mean, there's a lot of guys, not myself, but uh, there's potato growers here in the basin that, that grow for Frito-Lay. I mean, mm -hmm. can you imagine a Super Bowl without a potato chip? Yeah, no, that is really awesome. And I liked how you mentioned that because, well, personally, I used to work for Frito-Lay. So during the internship, I asked them the question, like, do you know what kind of farmers you guys are getting from or like how the process has grown and stuff? And Sadly to say, though, they didn't know how to give me a clear answer. They just said, you know what? Like, we don't 100% know, but we can probably try to get you more information later on. And I was like, me being the only ag student in that internship course, I was like, you don't know your growers? Like, you can't, you know what I mean? I was just, like, mind blown at that point. So I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. I'll like, tell you. I'll tell you, you you may have been the catalyst for change because I'm pretty sure that they have a, a program now that's called Know Your Farmer. Um, yeah. And 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 you know, if you go to the bag of chips, you can scan it and it'll tell you where that potato was grown. And the growers that are here in the basin, you know, they've they've got they've got uh, traceability back to the field to the day of harvest to the seller it went into to the truck that it was shipped on they you can go all the way back on that and and as a customer you can you can look which i think is an awesome program you know and, and i don't know how many people take the time to do that but you know it's like walking into a five guys and they post where the potatoes are coming from that day for their oh, french fries sure. need yeah. we need more of that right i mean mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it means a lot to a grower to know that he's appreciated yeah, you feel that connection, especially, you know, like us in general, we go like grocery shopping and stuff and we see like our clients like brands. Oh my God, like this is like a whole other level. I'm just like, I know these guys, you know what I mean? It's it's amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I love no, it. There, there's real people behind that that, uh, mm. that, that appreciate being appreciated. So for de definitely, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 
Yeah, so, yeah. A, a lot of the commercials say thank you, grocery store clerks, and yes, we are thankful for them, but we are very thankful for you, the farmer, um, Mr. Choice, for producing the food that goes onto our table, and and so thank you for for doing what you do and keeping our food supply strong. Yeah. Well, well, I, I appreciate you guys taking the interest and, and appreciate you saying that, but we, uh, you know, you you've, you've repaid us a thousand times by taking an interest in this today and and doing what you're doing and and helping to spread that message and and um, I I hope that. Uh, I hope other people will will um, will listen to this and share it with other people and and go to those web pages, go to the shutdownfedup.org mm -hmm. and and start to understand how how we're trying to build a platform for it and and um, you know it's a job that nobody wants but everybody needs right now. So exactly, exactly. exactly. We'll, we'll we'll put some links in the uh, in the description for the episode. So if anybody listening wants to uh, you know be directed to that much easier instead of looking it up yourself, just click on that in the notes and you'll be rocking and rolling. Yep. Yeah. Good Maybe to go. Be the title of the episode. Shut up and what is it? Shut, shut down and shut up. <laughs> 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 oh, well, so interesting note from that whole conversation. I don't know how it is that the extreme and, you know, I extreme, maybe not be the right word, but Northern California and then extreme Southern California have water crises. And then the Central Valley has a water crisis. And then the Salinas Valley has a water crisis. I mean, we got water crises everywhere. I... Where's the man behind the curtain in all of this, guys? I have no idea where he's at. So what what do you think's going on? Yeah, it does feel like there's a man behind the curtain. That's a that's a great example. Um, I, obviously, you know, we could all get real about this and say, well, it's multiple people. Um, but yeah, it's it does feel like somebody's pulling the strings because it's very obvious that yeah. there's a water crisis and. I mean, like Scott says, it, it took a pandemic for people to wake up enough to even be able to hear them. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it's it's. I'm hoping that that this is kind of the the beginning. I mean, we're seeing that the pandemic is waking up people about a lot of different issues in this country, and um, I, I'm hoping that that this can be one that can also have its voice <laughs> be heard right now. So that mm -hmm. way we can make yeah. you know, swift changes on multiple multiple issues. Yeah, it's it's just bizarre to me because it's every watershed in California that there's some type of farmer connected to. We we constant have constantly have either a shortage or a quality issue, and I'm not saying that those aren't you know that those aren't invalid. There's always a problem if there's a shortage or a quality issue. But why is it conveniently always falling on the back of agriculture, I guess, is my big thought process. It, it, you know, we are the largest consumptive user, I guess. That's probably makes sense why they're coming after us. But it just, yeah, it it's frustrating because mm -hmm. we are the, well, the driving force that got us through the pandemic. Sorry, Jeanette, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to follow up. Well, you remember when we touched point with Scott and he said... It's sad to know that we need to have a game plan for all this. Yeah. And I like to touch on that because I, I feel like that's the exact reason why that we have a water crisis is because we always find a way to figure it out. 
I don't know. That's a good point. So people are constantly picking on us because they're trying to, like, play a game of chess? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, think about it. Like, where do we land, I'm going to say this, in the political view? Like, where does our industry fit into all of that? I guess... like the... uh... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I, yeah, I was just going to say, I guess you, you could box, you know, if you took the whole ag industry and you put it on the spectrum, we kind of lean with the current administration that's in power. And that probably, you know, whoever's in power always has a target on their back, right? They're always right. going to go after the person that's got the got the power at that moment in time. So I could see what your point is. Sorry, Connor, you were going to say something. Yeah. And I think um, to continue on that thought, because that's that's an interesting point is it's kind of like um, saying I will do something instead of saying, well, I'll try to get that done. Mm-hmm. If you say I try, that means there's that reservation. There's that room yeah. allowed for you to fail. And so it's kind of like what you're talking about that ag has been known to be very resilient and very crafty and, um, mm-hmm. you know, being able to, to work through a hard time and make something good come out of it. And because of that, yeah, it almost is like it's a it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. The ag industry is able to work through hard times and challenges that they come up with. But because they've done that so well, it's almost like it's shot the industry in the foot, kind of. Yeah. Um, because there's yeah. there's that, that space that allows for the rest of society to not step up, but instead for them to fall back on ag, and ag then has to push it back up again. Because I just found it interesting and convenient, I guess, of them, how you would tell farmers, we're giving you 140,000 acre feet of water for them to come back and say, you're only getting like less than that. So it just, it irritates me so much when I, when I heard that it's like, you're prepping for the season already just to be cut off like Mm -hmm. in an instant. So really, where's the, where's the preparation in that? Like, how are you going to prepare for that? That's why I said it. I just found it convenient for them to just come out and say that. Well, and it's, it's because in, in what other line of work, what other industry are you going to get, you know, let's, let's just, put a, a, a number out there for a number, where else are you going to put a million dollar investment down? And somebody somewhere in a suit is going to say, you know what? You spent that million bucks, but we're not going to give you the additional resource required to produce what you need to produce. And you're just going to have to take that one in the pants. Just that doesn't happen anywhere else. And if it did, there would literally be riots like we're seeing yeah. right now. Lost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just, it's mind boggling, honestly. And so it was good to see that, that they decided to um, speak up stronger about it instead of just grumbling amongst ourselves. It was cool that they had that convoy that caught the attention of multiple news outlets, including ourselves. Um, I don't know if we're necessarily a news outlet, but we're working on it. We're trying. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll get there maybe one day. Um, But yeah, I, I thought that, that was that was great to see them step up and continue to be active. Um, again, very reminiscent of what else is going on in the world right now um, with George Floyd 
And I think it's great to see people taking an active stance in political issues across the board. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I really, the thing that really impacted me was just that fact that Scott just went for it. He said, we've seen uh, bucket brigades in the past and it's time for us to do something more active again to try to raise awareness. And, and I think we in the industry need to keep that momentum going. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's important that we keep that momentum going and don't lose sight of the fact that there's a real issue. And if we don't continue to raise our voices, it's going to get swept under the rug by the people who are vying for the other side. Yeah. And we need, we need to keep pushing that envelope and keep the awareness up. That's, that's the, that's the key factor here because mm-hmm. as soon as it loses momentum and it loses consistency, it's going to get swept right under the rug. And then we're going to be hit with another one of these situations, just like Scott was talking about. <laughs> this isn't, yeah. this isn't the first time this has happened. Yeah. And then and we're going to be right back in the same spot. Yeah. Yeah, so we need to we need to do something different this time. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, that's that's just the crazy thought is that this has this happened in Klamath twenty years ago, and then it happened again in the early twenty tens, and it, it's like clockwork. Every ten years, we're having something happen. So it's interesting, and I I won't lie, it's concerning, especially with something as ugly as Sigma coming down the pipeline, but. You know, I I really do think there's going to be some 11th hour conversations when it comes to that. At least I hope. And we'll see if I'm right or wrong, I guess, in the next six months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe this will be a shout out to uh, to everybody that's listening. Let's let's get something going. Let's let's keep the fight strong and Mm -hmm. let's let's fight for the water. We we need it across the state. Yeah. Like I was going to say, like Scott said, I mean. No, farmers in Klamath care about farmers in Kern County, and Kern County farmers care about people down in Imperial. So make sure that you're informed, you're up to speed on what's going on in other places. That way, when it comes to your door, you know how to fight it and stand with those that are currently going through it. So I, I think that that's really important, you know, for a statewide and really just kind of the Pacific Western side of the entire country. You know, Washington, Oregon, and California, we are in a connected water system, especially up in Northern California. We, we've got to pay attention to what's going on. We just really do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, uh, it's something that, we, again, can't lose sight of it. We need to, we need to keep, keep that dialogue going so that way, I mean, it, it's very reminiscent of my day-to-day job just be that squeaky wheel because you yep. know what they say squeaky wheel gets the grease so we need to need to keep being that squeaky wheel or, or that mosquito in the decision makers ears and then we'll find the wd-40 <laughs> yeah the wd-40 in the form of higher water allocation exactly well hey that would be the ultimate wd-40 but mm-hmm. i guess you know we, we we want to keep this kind of on the shorter side. So I know we had a, a rotating segment and I think it was recommendations. Like what are, what are we currently into? Mm-hmm. So yeah. what, what do what, you recommend? Yeah. Oh, there you go. What do you recommend? Well, put out your recommendations. Tell us, what do you recommend? Oh, I'm going. Okay. Um, <laughs> the latest book that I finished 
is called Live. It's by Sadie Robertson. Um, I don't know if you're, I'm going to say it's more for women, but men are okay, totally up for cool. it. It's very inspirational. Um, I found very touched with that book. And I would say for someone that's trying to find themselves, especially, you know, college students coming out of college, you know, the book really inspired me to just kind of really live, like live your life, take that chance, don't look back and just, you know, pay forward. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. nice. That's very cool. Nice. Yeah. Well, Clark. um, yeah, I actually, um, I actually just, uh, received a book as a father's day gift and started to open it up last night. <clears throat> it is called the drunken botanist by Amy Stewart. And, uh, you know, I'm, I love botany because of my background and <laughs> get it filed. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Anyways, but this is, this is a really fun book because, um, she starts it off by saying, once you realize where a lot of these spirits and drinks come from, mm-hmm. you can walk into any sort of like BevMo or total wines and more and just look around and say, Oh my gosh, you know, the gins are made from, uh, different types of juniper and conifers and, uh, whiskeys are made from different types of, uh, starches and, and wheat grains. And, and then, you know, you have the grapes and the wines and stuff. And she's, and so she says, you know, by the time that you've walked through the entire store, you realize that you're standing in this sort of like exotic, um, like greenhouse because everything comes from a plant. Mm-hmm. And so, so she true. goes through and yeah, it's really cool. So she, she goes through and, and this book is a deep dive into, all the different plants that are used to make all these different types of drinks and some of their historical background and then how they've been used in, in, uh, different types of, uh, spirits and beverages throughout history mm-hmm. and today. So yeah, it's, it's a fun read. It's, it's a, a different perspective on mm-hmm. uh, plants and, uh, just different products that are made. So it's a fun, it's fun. So if you're looking for something that to kind of break up the mundane, I, yeah, it's a fun read. I was just going to say, they're all plants, man. They're all plants. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, well, since you guys are are so studious, I was going to recommend a book, and I'm just going to plug it anyway. Start with Why. Great, great book. My girlfriend read it, and now I just cracked it open last night. Um, But I'll recommend a TV show that I'm super into right now. And the TV show is Hunters, and it's on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. And it is brilliant. That's all I'm going to say. It's, you know, the, the whole premise of the show is Jewish Americans that are hunting the remains of the Nazi party uh, hiding in America in the 1970s. So it's... Oh, it looks so good. It's such a trip, man. It's just crazy. And it, it really gives you an insight into... I mean, it's it's fictional, right? But they, they do pull from actual things that happened just a good little lens into how crazy the world can get when you just push it the wrong way and how people can do things. And, you know, there's revenge and all that good stuff. So, uh, if you're not one that can stomach, like lots of death in a TV show, it's not for you, but if you can, I highly, highly recommend it. You will be entertained. So check out hunters on Amazon prime. I like it. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
And I guess like in the effort of trying to keep things a little shorter, because I know we have a, a long conversation with Scott that we plug into this one, I, I guess we'll just call it a day. Yeah. Wrap it up, make it pretty, put a cute little bow on it. Yeah. Jeanette's like, yeah, I want to get the hell off this thing. So we're no, going to do no. that. No, no, <laughs> never. No, but before we finish off, I just want to give thanks to Scott Soyce for being a really genuine person for coming on and yep. giving us the opportunity to talk with him because having a conversation with him, I mean, it was, it was great. It was very eye opening, but also, um, very exciting too. You know, we, we had a, we shared a couple laughs too. It was funny. Um, but no, like just talking to him, like made me learn so much about what's been dealt with in the past and how is it that we're coming into the future and we're still seeing like feel of the same things occurring. So it's kind of like, okay, we're this new generation. Like we got to step it up now. We mm -hmm. have to take over and we have to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So. Got you. Well, I, uh, you know, I've, I've talked in, in circles enough. So Connor, I was just going to kick it over to you. If you want to throw final thoughts and put the, the tagline in there. Yeah. And as with all these, um, just make sure that you're conscious when you're going to the grocery store and take an extra second to think about the different types of products that you're buying, because it is important to support local growers and the products that they produce. And we're going to continue that going forward, uh, trying to promote our local heroes that are working hard to produce food that we like to enjoy. And uh, as always, thank you for tuning in to the best gluten-free podcast ever. We'll see you later. 